What's up? I'm Peter Medlin, and you are listening to Teacher's Lounge. If you've never heard this show before, well, good news, it's a pretty simple concept. We are an education news and interview show, and every single educator you hear on this program is nominated by the people who listen to the show. So if there's someone that comes to your mind, someone that has inspired you, a teacher, a coach, a professor, and helps you become who you are today, tell us about that person and they could be on the next episode of the show. Just email us at teacherslounge at niu.edu. Today, Mary Beth Kunit is on the show. She is principal at Spectrum Progressive School in Rockford. It's one of my favorite conversations, honestly, I've had in quite some time. I feel like this is like a free master's degree class in education. We went in-depth about her lengthy career in education, her time in Chicago public schools, as well as what it means to her to be a progressive school. It means that we're not trying to pigeonhole kids about, we're not defining success and failure by when children learn certain things by when. There's not grade levels. We don't say, oh, your brain is seven, so you have to learn this by now. And this is what it's supposed to look like in order for us to say that your seven-year-old brain is succeeding. But what's a child ready for? And we're not trying to push them through a scope and sequence that says, this is what you have to do now. So a lot of that's out the door. But so, so but what does define learning success is how is a child interacting? with the content, what kinds of questions are they asking. And we also talked about how she gets to work with her family at Spectrum, her daughter and her son-in-law, and about how her love of the environment, being a conservationist, impacted her going into education in the first place, her love of animals and sharing that with students, and specifically our mutual love of otters. I mean, who doesn't? Don't miss that. So obviously Spectrum is a private school, and they've had to come up with creative solutions to stay mostly in person since the fall, where many public schools decided to keep their students learning remotely for most of that time. And there were some families that decided to jump ship and often went to private religious schools that sold themselves as that in-person option. And I got to talk to Christian school leaders in Illinois about their approach to pandemic education. How have Christian schools been doing during the pandemic? Well, it depends on when you ask. After the spring upended education along with the entire economy, parents often pulled their kids out of parochial schools. The tuition, often upwards of $10,000 a year and sometimes beyond, was too expensive with many families furloughed. But in the fall, Peter Held says it was a different story. He's the principal at Rockford Christian High School. We've gotten a number of students from a variety of different local schools because they really need in-person education. In the fall, Rockford Christian, like 60% of independent private schools, was in-person. Only 5% of private schools were fully online. Now their enrollment is up, more than making up for the losses of early in the pandemic. Both Rockford Christian schools and Harvest Christian Academy in Elgin offered an online option as well. Harvest's only had a handful of students learning remotely, and Held says that more than 80% of Rockford Christian School students are in person every day. Harvest Superintendent Talbot Benkin says they enforce mask wearing, and they have small classes as it is. We've had very small amount of cases, probably four cases we've had. We didn't even get our first case until after the uh, end of November. Held says they've had cases too, and quite a few quarantines to handle. Religious schools have also had to adjust the way they practice faith. Gone are the days of packing the sanctuary full of students singing in their weekly chapel. Harvest still holds chapel, but they separate students out by grade level and space them out into sections. Rockford Christian has been live streaming services directly to classrooms to avoid any gatherings. But Principal Held says that's led to some unique opportunities via Zoom. We also connected with a few missionaries and we talked with somebody in Romania. We've also talked with somebody in China and we, you know, is it good to get a perspective from them that we'd have never been able to have otherwise. 
As for typical COVID-19 safety precautions, both schools do internal contact tracing and coordinate with their local health department. Benkin says they're also honest about their priorities. We tell them also, like, our goal is, like, to do anything we can to stay in person. Some school districts are approving contracts to do their own COVID-19 testing in the new year. Benkin says Harvest Christian Academy explored that option, but it was too cost prohibitive. The vaccine rollout also begs new questions of religious schools. Many public schools and the Illinois State Board of Education are actively encouraging staff and the school community to get vaccinated. Will they do the same? Peter Held says they're providing information on how to sign up for vaccines, but leaving it up to their discretion. I can tell you that every one of our faculty really want to be done with this pandemic, but I've had conversations with teachers and, and families and students that are all over the board. Some people are, are really excited. They want to be the front of the line. Others are a bit hesitant and others don't want to get it. Benkin says they've already had some nurses get their first dose. They participated in a survey from their county health department asking how many staff members were interested in getting the vaccine. He says the results went straight to the health department and he didn't ask what percent wanted it. Benkin also says they trust their tuition-paying parents to make the best decision for their kids. And he says they'll be comfortable either way when student vaccinations are imminent. We're just kind of firm believers in it. People should do what they're convicted to do. Particularly our parents. We tell them we're in a partnership with them and we really thrive on that. He says he does plan to get the vaccine himself. Yeah, I'm going to get it. I don't don't have any concerns. I've felt that way all along. I, I believe in medical science. Harvest and Rockford Christian had two of the top five highest numbers of religious objections among Illinois schools to immunizations for viruses like measles and polio. Each had more than 40 in 2019. It's been a traumatic school year for every student, parent, and teacher at any school. Matt Nyberg is the principal of Rockford Christian's pre-K and elementary levels. The conversations of faith for a lot of people and a lot of kids shifted from theoretical, kind of that like, you know, when you face problems in life, when you get really frustrated, to uh, a whole lot more tangible. But for those schools, it's been a godsend to have a common language of faith to center their conversations about the trauma of COVID-19. All right, now it's time for my wonderful conversation with Principal Mary Beth Kunit, along with a special student audience, kind of. I'll explain in a second. You are at an after-school program right now, so like you're on the job as we speak. Correct. <laughs> and I, which I think is a teacher's lounge first. I'm going to call it like a live studio audience. I'm going to take okay. it. That works for me. That's a, that's a good way to say it. I, I was going to go hide off in my office and have this private conversation, but, you know, it's hard to... And there's not very many students here now, but anywhere in our after school, we have anywhere from 10 to 20 who will be here after school. So we have, and we have preschool through middle school here still. I mean, the job never stops, right? And I know it that... Doesn't. I mean, you're a principal, but like you also have been teaching some other stuff along with those responsibilities too, right? Yep. Teaching science and Spanish and virtual math. And I've decided because coming in back into the classroom, because one of my teachers um, found another, you know, found another place. I, um, I have been noticing that some of my students really need penmanship. And I strongly believe everybody should be able to put a pencil or pen to paper and make it legible for anybody to be able to read. So I have, I'm combining some like penmanship stuff with like, this is your laboratory journal and for your science labs this time, I want you to do it in cursive. And I've been working on old fashioned handwriting strokes. And- oh, I don't know if I've ever told this story on the show before, but for some reason, when I was in school, 
I think that I'm the way I like to say, I think that I must have been sick the day they taught people how to write. <laughs> a lot of the letters I do, especially a letter S, you know, people do a letter S, they usually start at the top and go down. Yes. I start at the bottom and go up and it's like that for a lot of the letters that I write and I don't know how this happened. I don't know how it wasn't corrected, but people are generally appalled when they see how I write. I don't think it's terrible. I think it's legible, but yeah. I don't know what happened. Yeah, I mean, there's if, if you're going to make people write correctly, it's it's very interesting. I actually have created my own handwriting worksheets where I'm actually showing them where to start, because what I see is exactly what you're saying, where kids are starting the letters higher than they sh they're starting at the top when they, you know, in technical cursive to start at the bottom and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So there's and they're also starting towards the right when they should start towards the left. And it's interesting when you learn how to write, I've got all kinds of wonderful resources. I got the most bizarre and wonderful thing. I'm not sure I'm brave enough to show it to students. It's this guy teaching how to improve your handwriting in Hindi, but there's enough English words throughout. And he's such a good teacher that for 20 minutes, even though you don't speak Hindi, you understand everything he's saying. And it's just fascinating to me because he's, he's teaching engineering students how to improve their handwriting. How did you stumble onto a, a Hindi engineering handwriting lesson? Um, just, you know, what, what good teachers do, good, what good teachers do is they do searches and they are constantly looking for stuff and they're doing internet searches and Pinterest and teachers pay teachers. And I was just looking for really good handwriting and penmanship resources. I put it in my last principal's newsletter. I found the most amazing uh, TED Talks from a guy who is the 11th master penman in the entire world. He's the youngest one that ever lived. And it's a it's a 16 minute YouTube video that or not YouTube. It's on um, it's a TED Talk. But yep. he starts off with the importance of the pen and how it is the thing that makes us human because everything, every human endeavor, music, art, writing, mathematics, everything has had to be transcribed from someone's mind and experience onto some kind of way of representing that understanding and learning in all culture throughout place and time. So this ability of, of putting pen to paper is one of the things that makes us unique as human beings. And further than that, it's there's creative literacy, historical literacy, intellectual literacy, and he cites brain research to show how putting pen to paper or pencil to paper activates more of the brain than keyboarding. Right. And so it, it's, it's, it, it's one of the very ways in which we learn to think is by learning to write. And when children learn how to use, make their letters, it's helping them develop those early reading readiness skills. So I'm, you know, I'm not one of these people that stomp up and down on traditional stuff. I'm in a progressive school. I am not like rote learning at all. I think, except when it comes to penmanship. <laughs> hey, listen, we all have our things there that we can be staunch about, right? Yeah. I, well, Cursive is always something that I've been a little upset about because I remember when I was very vividly, I remember being in the third grade and not the teacher, but the teacher's aide in my third grade class being really, really honest about make sure you practice your cursive because once you get to fourth grade, it's going to be all cursive. And I got to fourth grade and there was no cursive and I never had to do cursive again for the rest of my life. Wow. <laughs> and I think that I can, I can write my name. Like I can, I can sign my name in a way that you can tell that this is Peter Medlin. But outside of that, 
I'm completely wrong. If you were to uh, put me in a situation where you were going to pay me to write the letter Z in cursive, I'm not sure I could do it. Wow. So, you know, isn't that the game? The game is up when kids start to realize that all of these threats, like, oh, you're going to have to know this in the next grade. And all of school is about being ready for the next grade and being ready for the next thing, rather than what the experience of this grade is and what I'm learning now and the creative stuff and all the learning that matters now, because it matters to me now. And it's important now. And I mean, I think that it, it's such a con game to sell children. Well, you have to know this in high school. Oh, you have to know this for college. Like, it's just most of that's not true. You know, the most important things we learn, you know, a lot of it's social emotional. A lot of it is learning how to learn, learning how to think, learning how to ask questions. And that kind of stuff you're going to need no matter where you go, you know, no matter what grade you are in. Yeah. And uh, so I'm excited about um, some work that's we, we just are finishing an author study on a book called Vintage Innovation by John Spencer. And the teachers are going to be showcasing all these cool vintage innovations. If I read you these titles, you would be so excited, Peter. Like one of them says, in a world of, of digital or in a world of something, it's every title said, in a world where like everything is so fast paced, we need to learn to slow down. So like in a world of automation, we need to learn nature in a world of I mean, the whole chapters are all based on different kinds of innovation in a world of static whatever i can't remember i'm not doing credit but yeah. like creativity curiosity you've got to um, do the uh, imagination it's so beautiful so we're going to have this showcase of all the ways the teachers are embedding these kinds of vintage innovations into our learning this year and then our next professional study a friend of mine has just published a, published a book called becoming einstein's teacher and it's all about intrinsic motivation and uh it's called a, the relational learning framework and the whole framework is based on developing this sense of autonomous learning in children very young children by getting them excited about learning learning how to learn learning how to ask questions taking ownership of learning it's all the right stuff and i'm so so excited about it that, that this book is coming out it's everything spectrum has been doing yeah but it it, it takes it to another level because like one of the pieces that, that I don't know what triggered this is one of the steps in her framework is why, how do I relate to this information or this concept or this skill or this knowledge? Like, why does it matter? Why is it relevant to me? And how am I going to take my understanding into my life and into my world and make myself and my world a better place? Yeah. I was just talking to a teacher in actually in Rockford Public Schools. He's a high school English teacher. And he was talking about uh, project-based learning, right? Right. And he was talking about how since they're a school district that focuses around a lot on career pathways, right? You know, you have some kids that are going down specific engineering pathways. And he's like, if I'm teaching, you know, writing and reading, is there a way I can tailor that stuff instead of just we're going to read Huck Finn twice and, and you're going to you know write me a response about it that, you know, if you're on an engineering pathway, can we get you writing and reading science textbooks and, and science manuals and things that are going to be more pertinent to whatever skill that you want and whatever career path that you're going down? Well, it's going to a way that's going to matter to you, yeah. right? Yeah, I um, my doctorate, part of I, I touch on systems thinking, but part of what I did in my doctorate was focused on what I think of as four-dimensional curriculum mm. that crosses place and time, that addresses multiple important 
domains of learning in one kind of, and that's what project-based learning does, because you're kind of coming into stuff. You have to be able to read and write the content that you're going to be applying in your project. You have to be able to make decisions. You have to be able to apply a lot of times mathematics and visual arts and presentation arts and skills and science. So you know, project-based learning that kind of lets you layer curriculum in a way that you're, you're getting a lot of bang for the buck, right? Of the time that you have on these projects. So absolutely. I mean, right. and I think that when you're talking about project-based learning and all the stuff that makes learning relevant to you and what you're interested in and sparks that intrinsic motivation, then you don't have to do the thing that we were talking about before, right? Which is the vague threats about you're going to need this for the future. <laughs> That's exactly and, right. Like, I forget where this quote came from, but I had it written down a while ago, and I think about it every once in a while, which is, I feel like, especially in 2021, when we talk about technology and how short our attention span is for everything, that, like, I feel like I'm, like, trained to feel slightly dissatisfied with everything, and so I can just, my brain is automatically, as soon as I start something, I'm automatically looking forward to what's oh. the next thing, what's the next yeah. thing after that, and I think that a lot of people thought that way you know, within certain parts of their own school journey, right? It's like, there's the first day of school. And then after the first grade, day of school, the thing that you're looking forward to is the last day of school. Yeah. It's like always what's ahead instead of where we're at now. And that's one of the nice things about all the mindfulness stuff that's in education now is like being in the now and being where we are and being who we are now is important. Like paying attention to our feelings, paying attention to our relationships. Like, you know, we start half the school starts with yoga every day and that just being in your own body is such a significant thing are you leaving oh you're going bye-bye okay okay all of your boxes are over there i put them over there on top so that so sorry peter no this is great this is what we call natural sound in the business i'm, I'm gonna show you i'm gonna show you where they are so I know, but I I didn't want anyone to take your stuff. So I oops, Bailey, I'm so sorry. I just popped her in the face. Just back someone Bye. in the all right. Did you get Valentine's? Yeah, look at that. It's Valentine's party. So yeah, I um can't remember where we are, but being in the moment, isn't that what we're all trying to learn? If COVID hasn't taught us anything else, it's to kind of take a breath and appreciate like where we are right now, celebrating being healthy, being able to see your family. Some people can't, right? Being able to, you know, do things that, you know, taking some time to say, hey, it might really stink that, you know, we can't go out to eat the way we used to, but boy, have we all learned how to cook better. <laughs> yeah, I know. It, it's interesting. And I know that like focusing on the whole child is like one of the main tenets for your guys' school. Right. And obviously, mental health is a big component of that. And like you said, during COVID, you know, schools are trying more and more to do these social emotional lessons, focus on mental health. Well, I'd say, you know, in March, we had to, we were forced to take a day off in March before everything shut down. Yeah. We took a day off because we had a, a potential direct contact. So we got a lot of press because we shut down on a day when we weren't told to shut down because we wanted to be cautious. And on that day, my lead teachers spent that entire day looking at everything that had been going around in the world, all over the world. They spent that whole day researching, what are we going to do if we have to shut down? And the first, and then the next day we had school and 
we had a meeting that day and the number one most important thing that they decided then we shared is like we need to help make sure students feel connected and important and that we're not going to forget them and we're going to show up and we're going to connect with them every single day every single child is going to have someone from our school connect with them and even if it's just going online for five minutes and singing the silly song with the, the principal on the guitar which is you know one of the things i do right like it it and that's why the virtual learning like yeah it would be a lot easier to let those students go find someplace else you know but we can't do it because they matter every single child is the most important child on the planet every single child matters and and that's one of the reasons why it's so hard, hard for us to bottle spectrum is you could have a program and a system and a framework, but the only thing that really makes programs and systems and frameworks and curriculum work is the relationships of the adults and children who are together. What do you mean to say to bottle it? Well, so like I, you know, as every private school out there in the world, I'm constantly looking at sustainability. And yes. I'm constantly looking, how am I going to get us into a financial footing that I'm not constantly, I'm worried, you know? Yes, and I, uh, I remember a year or two, a couple of years ago, I had a conversation with the the principal or with the president of uh, community college. And he said, uh, just because we're nonprofit doesn't mean we're for loss. <laughs> and I always right. call that phrase. That's exactly right. I mean, I, I put all of the money for my house sale in Chicago and a lot of my own salary back into the school to keep us going because it okay. matters to me, right? I and, I, and I think when I say bottle it, I mean, I would love to be able to do what my friend Erica Twani did and write the book that people are going to buy and go to the conferences and stuff. But every time you try to every time you try to distill what makes Spectrum special and, and say what distinguishes us, it always comes down to this idea is it's the relationships that are so solid, the trust and the, the risk taking and the connections that teachers are fostering with children with themselves and that teachers are fostering among children that makes that learning and that relationship and that connection to that learning so important, you know, and that's why kids love going to school here. Yeah. They love coming here. And how, how do you do that? You do that by loving them. Well, and I also saw you guys have like a video tour on the websites and I also saw that people were doing some kids were doing some reading and they were reading on these like sweet uh, inflatable inner tube. <laughs> so like that's another reason to go. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I thought that was a great way. I mean, that's a COVID solution. You keep them six feet apart on the inflatables and then being <laughs> six feet apart isn't so hard because you get to be on an inflatable, you know. That is true. One of the things that you guys, you know, it's, you guys are a progressive school. And I'm curious, like, not within education, like, what does that mean to you specifically when you think about that? Well, it, there's a lot. It means that we're not trying to pigeonhole kids about, we're not defining success and failure by when children learn certain things, by when. So, bye, honey. Bye, girls. So, so there's, um, you know, there's a, there's not grade levels. We don't say, oh, your brain is seven. So you have to learn this by now. And this is what it's supposed to look like in order for us to say that your seven-year-old brain is succeeding. You know, we use the, a lot of what is from Piaget and Vygotsky talks about what's a child ready for. And we're not trying to push them through a scope and sequence that says, this is, this is what you have to do now. So a lot of that's out the door, but so, so, but what does define learning success is how is a child interacting with the content? What kinds of questions are they asking? What kinds of creative and 
authentic responses are children having to this interaction with the learning that we're hoping, you know, that they make sense to them. Um, so part of it is just pacing and not being, not being, you know, stuck in grade level, not being stuck in grades at all. Our students don't even get grades through fifth grade. Um, and then they start maybe getting percentages a little bit in sixth grade. And then by, by the time they're moving into eighth grade, we're trying to help them understand where they're at as far as content, because we're trying to get them ready for the next thing in high school. And that's because we only go through eighth grade and it's our obligation. We don't want to send kids to high school not ready. Right. So we have to be a little closer to what that looks like for us. Um, also for me, progressive. So you've got this integrated uh, experience of curriculum. You've got childhood readiness. You have multi-age classrooms. You have project-based learning. You have student-led inquiry, student-led projects. You're creating a sense of ownership and curiosity. We have this wonderful structure called interest groups, and we haven't been able to do them this year because of COVID, sure. but it's where you have multi-age and they just dive into a deep project for one or two weeks. And so interest groups might be on, like I did an interest group that was a science fair interest group, and we just did science all day long with second, third, fourth, and fifth graders. And we did project after project after project. And then some interest groups might be on animation. There was an interest group on woodworking, an interest group on photography. And so then you just say, hey, the only, what we're going to do now is we're, and that's Spectrum. That's not progressive, right? Spectrum has its own version of progressive, I'd say. And it has all these really cool structures, process folios where kids are keeping track of their work over time. And kids are talking about their work with their parents at conferences. And kids are talking about their learning goals at the beginning and middle and end of the year and, and reflecting on those. One of the things that I think is unique about Spectrum is that we're not, we're not static. Whoever's in front of us this year, those 15 kids are the ones we're working towards. And so we're not going to do the same thing every year. We're going to figure out what those kids need, what those kids want. And we might have those same kids, some of those same kids the next year. And so we've already know what they're done. We know them. It's this knowledge of students that's so unique to Spectrum. You know, it's not about the, the program or the framework. It's really about the kids. Yeah. And so it's this flexibility and this ability to do what's right for the kids in front of us. I'm, I'm glad that you're talking about this because I feel like these are all uh, perspectives and things on education that maybe people who, uh, you know, don't uh, work inside of this every single day or think about this stuff every single day might not consider all this, these ideas that we're talking. I feel like this is a free podcast. I feel like we're getting a master's degree in education right now. I feel like people should be paying for this <laughs> every it's, time. <laughs> it's, a, it's good stuff. It's really, really good stuff. Uh, I was going to ask about the, the kind of nature-based part of, of your guys' learning too, because I'm really fascinated with how people approach that. I, I've, I've talked to some groups over the years that are doing uh, different like kindergarten readiness that are uh, there was a place in DeKalb that is called the uh, little adventurers and they do a mm -hmm. whole outdoor based thing so I became a teacher because I wanted to be an environmentalist and a conservationist and save the planet and that was back that I was asked that in fifth grade what do you want to do I want to save the planet and I have been an environmental education and an advocate for that my entire career. I walked into Spectrum and I walked into teachers who were environmentalists who were absolutely deeply committed. I have one of my teachers who's in, trying to do no waste in her personal life. And that's what they were doing in the classroom too. They use, I mean, it's amazing. So I inherited this beautiful, oh, Anthony, that's great. You did a whole diorama. Uh -huh. That's fantastic. I see you got frogs, honey. I'm on the I'm on a call right now. I'm gonna look at it as soon as I'm done. Okay, okay. so we've got so we've got this beautiful campus here with 
prairie and woodlands and wetlands and beautiful natural playground. And what nature, what we know is nature teaches children, if you give a chance to take a pause, have them ask questions, have them make comparisons, have them solve you know, find patterns. My first year here, I was blown away. The preschool teacher told me she'd found 20 different kinds of mushrooms with the preschoolers out in that those woods and that they were able, they took pictures of them. They were able to classify them, sort them. It was just like, blew me away. And then they're going out and they're finding where the deer fell asleep in the fall. Oh, yeah. finding leaves. I mean, just nature is its own teacher if you know how to pay attention. And I think that's one of the things I see in our teachers is this desire to have the students connect. We have this beautiful school garden that has five flower beds and having kids get their hands dirty and pluck the tomatoes and pluck the cucumbers and, you know, being connected to the earth. There's once, if you take some time and have children experience that, um, it, it gives them a sense of valuing what you know, valuing this planet that we're living on. And, you know, and I think another thing in terms of nature education is appreciation for the animal world and doing deep studies. Right now, if you walk down our hallway, one of the groups has just done this deep study of the oceans and all the horrible things that we're doing to oceans as human beings. But a part of that is also, they fell in love with whales and dolphins. And the fifth grade teacher told a story yesterday or Tuesday about how she couldn't get them interested in all the overfishing and all that stuff. They didn't want to look at it from issues. They really wanted to focus on the animals. And one of them started doing some research on dolphins and they fell in love with these different dolphin, uh, different kinds of dolphins. And they got into their research and then they found out that one of the dolphins was extinct just recently in the last few yeah. years. And then they said, what made it extinct? And then they found out all these issues that they really didn't want to delve into were the reasons why the, the microplastics and the pollution and the huge garbage and the overfishing and the trawling on the bottom for nets. And all of a sudden that really bothered them because right. they'd fallen in love with the animal. So that builds motivation, right? Yeah. Yes. I truly believe that when children fall in love with animals, you've got all kinds of ways that you can make connections for them in so many ways, careers, science, social, emotional. I mean, absolutely. I mean, the social emotional thing. I mean, I, I was just talking to not too long ago, a, a guy that does adventure therapy. So he, he takes people out. He's a registered, he's a, you know, certified therapist and he'll go outside and, and work with people, you know, on trails or in forest preserves, that type of thing. And, you know, for me, I, I don't, Mary Beth, I don't know if you knew this, but I'm a big trail runner. No, I didn't. Yeah, my whole family are. And so I'm outside, like earlier today, I was out at, uh, you know, at, at a lake in one of the forest preserves uh, near me running through the woods. And not only is there a big part of that that is social emotional, that it's, it is a kind of form of, of therapy or meditation for me being mm -hmm. out here. But when you talk about animals, like I, I was just out at a forest reserve last week and I wandered onto this a little area and I could see this small frozen pond and I saw three small deer. It was literally a scene out of Bambi of like three small deer walking across this frozen pond. And it's, it's absolute magic. <laughs> yeah, right. You get it, you know, and that's what you, that's what nature education is. It's making sure that students have those opportunities to experience that magic in nature. You know, there's a wonderful Facebook group called Illinois Nature Lovers. Yeah, And it is fantastic. And yesterday I saw a post of a bobcat and this bobcat was just, 
it looked like it was posing. I'm like, bobcats in Northern Illinois? Are, it's, it just blows me away that yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 bobcat out there, you know? And, uh, you know, and for me, moving to Rockford and seeing all the wild turkeys, that was like, I, my first time, because I'm a bird watcher, my first time seeing a wild turkey in Indiana was probably 20 years ago. And it was the only time. And I was like, going crazy <laughs> you know wild turkey oh my god oh my god i went to rockford and they're in my front yard you know yeah uh-huh it's it's incredible yeah it's it's fascinating to me i, I want to hear more about your journey to education you mentioned that in fifth grade you wanted to save the world you wanted to be an environmentalist at yes. what point did you get from there to that journey uh, means that I need to be an educator. Do, do you really want to know all this? Because it's an interesting story. I really do. This is literally the show, Mary Beth. <laughs> okay. my, my teacher, my fifth grade teacher asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I'll be anything but a teacher. I wanted at that point to save sea, seals and sea otters and bears. And I said, I'll be anything but a teacher. And then um, I went to a rough high school and I moved to Washington State, mm. as a high school junior. Mm -hmm. I grew up in, a, in Michigan, outside of Ann Arbor. Yeah. And, um, and I went to the rough side of the tracks in Ypsilanti, Michigan, and it was a really junky high school. And all you had to do to raise your grade was to show up. So people would show up drunk and high and they would still get attendance credit. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to be, because I wanted to learn. And um, so I went, I moved to Washington State and I worked on a conference grounds and took care of my godson as a 16 year old. Wow. And then, um, then I, that situation didn't work out anymore. Mm -hmm. And I was on the verge of quitting high school. And I had taken the PSAT and I'd done really well. And I'd gotten a call from Knox College in Illinois, which is how I ended up in Illinois, right? Like they said, oh, why don't you come to our summer program? I said, sorry, I'm not gonna come to your summer program. I have to quit high school and get a job. And they said, what, you're going to quit high school? And I said, yeah, I'm quitting high school and I'm going to get a job. And they said, forget that, forget that. And they offered me a free four-year scholarship after my junior year. No kidding. So I joke around that I'm a high school dropout with two master's degree and a doctorate, doctorate degree. Uh, and so I started. And so then here I am. I just was like, loved learning. I just loved it. And so my two first two years of college, I took everything and anything I could take because I was interested in everything because I really, I just love learning. I feel the same so, way, Mary Beth. I, I spent my first two years at a community college and that was all happenstance. I wasn't supposed to go there, but I, in retrospect, wouldn't do it any other way because it afford, it literally afforded me the opportunity to do that and I didn't know what I was doing. And I was right. doing everything from uh, local and state government courses to I was doing some Shakespearean acting at the same time. And so, I had so much value from being able to dabble within all that. Right. And I, I, all of it I did all that. I did all that. You're right. And it's just so wonderful to have people get that opportunity. But then it doesn't put you on track to graduate. So I sat down with my counselor and he said, you know, there's only two majors where all these courses will count, American studies or elementary education. I've taken everything but physics, right? Every, literally, in economics. I wasn't interested in economics. So I thought, okay, I'll try an education course. And I said my first education course, and it was really about the hidden curriculum, and it was a lot of philosophy, and I liked it, and I fell in love. And I fell in love with my education professor. And then I, I student taught in an urban education program in Chicago with very, very poor students. And 
I, I was hooked. I, I fell in love with teaching and fell in love with student teaching. And I have been in love with teaching ever since. And that's why I'm teaching now, even though I'm a full-time principal, I'm now a full-time teacher because I think being in the classroom gives me energy. And I was just sharing with one of my teachers, you're always learning when you're a teacher. Because you can always, I mean, that's the thing you asked about how I knew about those different handwriting things. You're just, you're always learning and there's always something new. And the experience of children and watching those light bulbs go off and encouraging the questions and saying there are no wrong answers. Everything is, even if you're wrong, it's you're learning that there's another, there's something else, to, another way to look at it. And I feel like, I know that I'm here to talk. I feel like I'm talking so much, but I fell in love with teaching and I fell in love with children just the same way I'd been in love with animals, right? So there's two things that matter more to me than anything, the animals on this planet and children. Do you feel like you've been able to then within education continue on your crusade to save the planet? Well, so when uh, Illinois, back when I was a teacher, there was a group that was pushing for having environmental standards, environmental education standards, and I got to be part of that. I was, have you seen them a day when tall grass prairie out towards Aurora and Joliet? It used to be the Joliet Arsenal. No, I don't think so. The first national tall grass prairie. Mm. And I was instrumental and part of a whole campaign with this, that with my students to convert this uh, former arsenal into this prairie land. Um, And, but I just think every time I have interactions with children about animals, it's taking that love for animals and nature just that much deeper i hope so i hope so yeah you know i'm certainly gonna foster and any of those conversations any way i can my first interest group here at spectrum was on on uh sea mammals and we and so anyway i'm a big shed sponsor i love shed aquarium and so i got to take my small group to shed and we walked we're walking around we got a private tour because i donated enough money so that i could get this (laughs) private tour and here's this 500 pound giant thing we're back and they think with me they got to interact they got to feed sea otters you know they got to have this experience with the animals and it was probably one of the most important significant moments of my life to be with children with sea mammals and just just oh man and i just so yes i hope so i love i will i will pursue every opportunity to do that that i can i tell you what uh you mentioned you know those pictures of bobcats and wild turkeys the thing for me like my white whale of the animal that i've never seen in northern illinois out in the wild is river otters Yeah, I, they've always been my favorite animal. Like talk about going to the Shedd Aquarium or even like the Lincoln Park Zoo, seeing them there. I had like I had like river otter stuffed animals, like all the goods. I love it. I I agree with you. If you tell me if I had to name my favorite animal, it would probably be otters. I I wouldn't distinguish between river and sea otters, but that's the reason why I sponsor Shed because I want to make sure those animals always have food. And so I, you know, the people at the guy at Shed who I interact with knows how much I love otters. And whenever there's an otter thing, I like get the email like, hey, there's an otter thing going on. Forward me all the otter emails. Okay, I sure will. That's fantastic. All right, Mary Beth, I don't want to take up too, too much of your time. I I only have a couple more questions for you. I have a couple kids. I still have a kid here, so we're okay. You can get out of your hair then. Uh, you mentioned that you had been in Chicago uh, teaching for a while. Uh, That was for how long were you in, uh, in CPS? Uh, well, I started out in the archdiocese for about 
eight years, nine years, and then I was in CPS for 20 something years. And I don't know, if you look me up on the internet, you'll see that I got smack dab in the middle. I was a lightning rod for a conflict between Black Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter. And I was crucified basically. And so, yeah, I, I did see that. And it seems like a, a lot of those stuff and uh, kind of the thing that you're right in the middle of is actually really pertinent to like a lot of conversations that people have been having with schools and with CPS yep, and police right. in the last year. It's very interesting when I see the stuff that's going on, even in the world about courageous conversations. One of the things that was upsetting to people is that we were reading the book Courageous Conversations as a staff with parents. And some people refused to participate because they didn't think there was any such thing as white privilege. And it really bothered them. And it bothered white people that I was talking about white privilege and it bothered black people that I was talking about white privilege. And I just, I couldn't win. I, I, I had a career day. I brought a young man in who just impressed the heck out of me, but not knowing that he was on the, the list of really Police did not want this young man anywhere. They didn't, he, he'd been to the United Nations, you know, of all things. He was an incredible advocate sure. for justice. I, I ended up the white supremacists, some of the white supremacists, it started threatening my family. No kidding. That's... And I had brand new granddaughters who, you know, weren't even six months old and they said vile things on their social media. Wow. So, and then they threatened my son-in-law. So it was really, really, really hard. And I, I took an early retirement cause I could, I, it, it was just an odd thing going on in the world. Spectrum was looking for a principal and I had already started pursuing Spectrum and looking at Spectrum as a potential place to retire to, right? As a, and um, you know, it's just, everything lined up for me to be here. And, but now it's a little bit bittersweet to see that the conversations that were called into question, all the things that everyone has to do now, there's no choice. We have right. to be in these conversations. Right. We have everything to face reality race of systemic racism and everyone's doing it. But I got crucified for trying to do that as a white woman um, in the context where I was at in Chicago three years ago. And then eventually, the, like you said, stars aligned and that led you to where you're at now at Spectrum. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't had the courage to be honest to enter into those dialogues again, you know, because it was just, it was really too painful. And here I, I am in this that's, UU that's traumatic. I mean, that's giant, horrible thing this giant Black Lives Matter sign, this UU church where a police chase resulted in the death of a policeman and a young African-American man. And this UU church that put up a giant Black Lives Matter sign after the stuff that happened in the summer. And I had families walk away because of that Black Lives Matter sign. And, I'm, and then I, on the other side, I had the church accusing us of being, you know, not anti-racist enough because we were concerned about the safety of our children when we had people pulling up in parking lots asking about our Black Lives Matter sign, right? Like we, yeah. it's a no-win situation, and it, it, but we have to keep moving forward and we have to keep being courageous. And, and I tell you, it's, it's incredibly, it's still a raw wound for me because I really felt like I was doing the right thing. Yeah. And I was, I had to, I had to deal with, you know, the, the police advocacy group and I just couldn't I couldn't win absolutely and Mary Beth I understand that's I mean that's a horrible her traumatic thing that you had happened to so that's, that's I don't I don't blame it for that I mean this is the first time I've talked about it I had a lot of people want the story but you know 
but it's it, it it's it's I'm here and my daughter in her own way has taken up the charge she was she was pushing really really hard for those social workers to be riding along with police officers to address have people who knew how to deal with mental health situations ride along to yeah. prevent the violence you know and she's she's been an absolute just beacon of trying to take care of people differently who are up against situations, you know, and not, not, you know, we've got this, you know, school to prison pipeline for so many. And then if there, if there's mental illness involved, it's like the police need support in managing that. So I'm really, really proud that Rockford has started moving in the direction of the ride alongs with those supports, you know, and I feel like my daughter was having the conversations last summer. And so I, you know, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, and you could. There's episodes of this show that if people are interested in, in these types of topics, they can go back with conversations uh, around the election last year. We were talking to a professor, uh, Christine Rivers, over at DePaul University, uh, and she was talking about uh, the school to prison pipeline. She's a professor of political science, African American studies, all that stuff. So I can I can link link to that episode of the show. In, yeah. Uh, it's a, you know it's an important topic, and if we don't do something about it, I mean, and now with what's happened with COVID, we've lost millions and millions and millions of children. We don't know where they are. We don't know how they are. We don't know who they're with. We don't know what they're doing all day. And the we've got there's got to be somebody who's going to help. I mean, we've got to begin thinking about what are we doing for our children. You know. Yes. And we actually, I just again, not to just keep sitting here promoting myself, but we just. I just ran a story uh, just this last week that will be embedded in part of this podcast too. That is about uh, homeless students and right. the mission to find those students because schools are having such trouble identifying them uh, during the pandemic. My my latest uh, binge novel was um, Reliquary, in which it talks about the homeless underground in New York City. Five thousand, ten thousand. Many of them are children and families that are getting away from a system that isn't working for them. I mean, and what are we doing for these people? How are, how are you know, it's, you can, you can focus on it, focus on it. And then you just say, I got to do the next right thing. You're doing the next right thing. You're talking to people, right? Like mm. we got to keep the conversations going about how to address the needs of the people on our, on our planet, you know, and the animals on our planet. Yeah. Mary Beth, you mentioned your your daughter or your daughter-in-law. My you, daughter. Your daughter, as you say, I, I remember uh, when I got to go to Spectrum when I when I was there for when you guys were shooting your outdoor special, the Christmas special. I think that you, maybe your son-in-law was was the one filming. I think there's. It seemed like there was a lot of uh, people within your family that are in the Spectrum orbit. The, right. Right. My, da my daughter found Spectrum. That has to be a really fantastic feeling for, for yeah. you as an educator and, and to have this kind of community and trying to cultivate a family atmosphere and then literally having your family there. It's very interesting. She's my middle school teacher, now my middle school teacher partner. My son-in-law does the weekly newscast and does a lot of the videotaping. She does the editing. My husband helps me with the technology. My granddaughters are students here now, but I'm one of four grandmothers whose kids are here. My secretary, my office manager has her daughter teaching and her granddaughter's an assistant. Um, my kindergarten teacher's grandson goes here. I just hired the grandson of my preschool teacher to help in my one of my classrooms. So we have four grandparent grandchild 
relationships that exists in the school. And I think it's pretty <laughs> amazing to me, you know, it creates a whole different dynamic. Cause it, if there's one thing you ask any of the spectrum old timers, it's family, you know, it really does feel like a family. And my whole, I moved my entire family to Rockford to take this school with the hope and promise that what it's going to bring to my grandchildren. So I just want to say thanks so much for thanks. taking some time it, within the, the storm of your after school activities that you've got to handle, taking some time to talk about this. Thank you so much for my pleasure, my honor, Peter. Really, thank you for giving me the time. Thanks for listening. I will drop links in the show notes to the episodes I mentioned. And if you're interested in reading more about the situation that forced Mary Beth to leave CPS. As always, feel free to nominate a teacher in your life to be on our show. It's how we get great guests like Mary Beth. Send them our way, teacherslounge at niu.edu. And wherever you're hearing this podcast, subscribe, leave us a rating, share it, anything you can do to help the old algorithm. It just gets more listeners and more perspectives, more educators on this show. Big thanks to the Northern Illinois band Kind Ofs for the awesome music you hear every single episode of this show. Thanks to Spencer Tripp for making our Teacher's Lounge logo. And I have been your host, Peter Mudlin. Thanks so much. We'll be back with more Teacher's Lounge very soon. See ya.